Imagine the following. I, I want to study the human brain. I'm interested in how the brain works and how diseases impact on us. How can I work on this? I can work to some extent with humans who are alive, but I cannot really look into their brain. I cannot intervene. I cannot manipulate a lot. I can use rats or mice or also monkeys, but this is very limited because first of all, they're very different. They learn differently. Their access is also very limited. One macaque is at the moment increasing in price from about $5,000 before the pandemic to $35,000 to $50,000. Welcome to the Mr. Rat Show, where I talk to the most interesting global personalities about the future of humanity. Hello, beautiful humans. I'm sitting down today with the one and only Thomas Hartung. He's a professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and an expert on OI, organoid intelligence. Listen to this. It's not AI. It is OI. And you heard it well. Organoid intelligence. Thomas, come stai? Wie geht's dir? Well, Thomas speaks several languages, by the way, and he right now is in beautiful Italia. That's why I said, come stai. Thomas, let's break it down right away, because I, I think the title is already a bit telling, but it is very unclear to me what is organoid intelligence. So maybe you can tell us what OI, organoid intelligence, is. Okay, sure. Organ intelligence combines two of what we call disruptive technologies. So the things which are really changing the world as we know it, at least in biomedicine, which is the possibility of creating organoids and AI. And we call this organ intelligence because we combine brain organoids with the artificial intelligence capabilities. And this okay. is opening up for some quite incredible stuff of learning and memory taking place in a petri dish, essentially. Taking place in what, sir? This is opening up for learning and memory in a dish. We call them petri dishes originally, but it's, it is just saying that cell cultures can suddenly do things which were before only seen in animals and humans. Okay, wait, I need to go slowly here, slow, slower here because I, okay, so, so basically a, a organoid intelligence is a combination between AI and organoids. I need to understand, let's leave AI on the side, because I think by now a lot of people know or have an idea what AI is and what AI can do. But organoids, let's focus on organoids. What is organoids? Yep. This is actually a, um, a technology which has evolved mainly over the last 15 years or so, which is very similar to AI disrupting the way we do research. Organoids become possible mainly because of the advent of stem cells. Stem cells are cells coming from human donors, which are able to produce essentially every cell type and every tissue. And this technology became possible in an ethically clean way only in 2006. Yamanaka received the Nobel Prize for this technology already six years later, which is almost unheard of. Because it, is, it was so evident that it is changing by, by medical research. He found a way of taking whatever cells, skin originally, in the meantime, we take blood cells or cells for urine even, and we reprogram them to become something like an embryonic stem cell. 
technology has over the last one and a half decades enabled to produce brains, kidneys, livers, whatever you want. And this is really something which is extremely empowering because if you want to do research in medicine, in the life sciences, we need models. And these models, either animals in the past, which are very different to humans. We are, I always say we are not 70 kilogram rats, uh, but also yeah. the human cell models were terrible because I'm working on the brain. If I ask somebody for some cells of their brain, they will nicely decline. It is, it is really something which is uh, where we don't get access because patients are brain dead by definition. I would further want living brain to work on. Uh, if mm. I could possibly get them from after they deceased. So it's really about getting good cell culture materials from humans in a very reproducible way. And this is really an enabling technology, which is allowing us in all fields of medicine at the moment to come up with new models. So, okay, let me see if I understand correctly. The, the organoids topic or concept is mainly used for basically improving the way we do research as humans, because exactly. you're using, you're using cells, in, or let's say this technology helps researchers like you, specialists like you to use a cell that is human, but is still alive basically, or blame me a bit more. Cause I think I'm not, I'm not getting it because you talked that you talked about organ, uh, sorry, stem cells. Okay. Imagine the following. I, I want to study the human brain, um, because right. I'm, I'm interested in how the brain works and how diseases impact on this. How can I work on this? I can work to some extent with humans who are alive, but I cannot really look into their brain. I cannot intervene. I cannot manipulate a lot. I can use rats or mice or also monkeys, but this is very limited because first of all, they're very different. They learn differently. They the access is also very limited. One macaque is at the moment increasing in price from about $5,000 before, before the pandemic to $35,000 to $50,000. So it's very difficult to, to do. Research. Wow. Wait, wait, wh why did the price go up so much after the pandemic? Do you know? Uh, mainly because China stopped exporting them. They did oh. 60% of the supply in, in the US at least. And this is really putting companies at the moment under enormous pressures because for some registrations of drugs, they need non-human primates as they call them monkeys. And they sometimes now have to wait for about a year to get their studies done. They need for registration. Mm. So there is a, there is a little bit of traffic jam in the research environment because of this. Very much so. And you cannot imagine how valuable any day of delays, um, people have calculated that one day delay of registration is worth about $2 million for a pharmaceutical company. So you can imagine how they're all at the moment trying to solve this problem of not having access to this, but we're get, getting a bit sidetracked here. I'm just saying it is extremely difficult to get them. And for researchers like me, if I would work with monkeys, which I don't, it would be very difficult to get them even at the moment. Right. And this is why the possibility of getting something bioengineered from human cells is such a fantastic opportunity. And I mentioned already Yamanaka, uh, who in 2006 described how to do this, yeah, because he found a way of 
taking an adult cell, for example, from the skin and reprogram it to become something like an embryonic cell. And as we know, embryonic cells produce all the tissues of the body. So it is only a matter of finding the right tricks to make out of these embryonic cells now the real tissues. Okay, wait, let's pause in there. So basically, instead of using animals, you say you don't do that anyway, but in general, instead of using monkeys, for example, for um, research, you could take a stem cell, an embryonic cell, and reprogram it so that it looks like a brain cell of a human, basically, and then do research on that. This is exactly what we did. Um, so we started um, receiving funding for this type of research in uh, 2012 from the NIH, and we started building brains. Unfortunately, others were faster than us uh, because already in 2013, when we just were experimenting with the first of these models, this was already published by somebody else. We were only the fourth group actually to produce brain organoids in 2016, but we were the first to mass produce them. Thousands of identical brain organoids tiny, 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 we called them mini brands at the time, but because they were so standardized they opened up for testing because if you can have many, many of these brain organoids, then you can test different substances on them. You can test different doses of a, of a substance on, on them, or you can uh, manipulate them in very many different ways in order to do your research. And we, and give give me an example. Sorry, Thomas, give me an example so, so I don't I don't lose this track because I, I find this super interesting. What do you mean with testing certain substances? Give me an example of what you test on this brain organoid. So now I know that this brain organoid sort of resembles the human brain, right? So instead of testing on a, a live human brain, which would not be possible with for obvious reasons, you can test on this mini mini brain, mini organoid brain, mini brain organoid. What kind of tests do you run on this, for example? I mean, our work is, for example, motivated very much by the tremendous increase in autism, which we are observing. You know, autism is a developmental problem of the brain. And it was something which was extremely rare in the seventies, about one in 10,000 children was diagnosed in the US to be autistic. The latest numbers for March this year say that in the US, one in 36 children is now diagnosed with autism before the age of eight. And this is an enormous increase. And we, this is no, can also no longer be explained by better diagnostics and awareness. It is really something which is a clear increase for which we need to find causes. And since the genes do not change in this short time frame of a few decades, it must be something with our lifestyle with the exposures we are seeing. And, uh, so we are asking, what is the possible contribution of some chemicals to this type of, uh, of increase in disease? Um, mm. We have the chemicals, but we need a model. We need something which is showing us whether the development of the brain is derailed in the presence of these chemicals. And that's mm. exactly the type of research we are carrying out with these brain organoids. So you, you, you sort of inject the chemicals into the, the mini brain, the mini organoid, and then you see some development, some, re, some results. Exactly. Well, we have and is this, is this coupled to a computer, like to a software, so you can like visualize it on a screen kind of? 
that's exactly where we are heading with the organ intelligence part. At this moment, we are mainly looking into how do these different cell populations form? How do they connect to each other? So is there a regular development of the structures, architectures of the brain to the extent we can study this in these brain organelles? And this is really fascinating. We can see, for example, that if we do these brain organelles from cells, which originate from a patient which developed autism, they behave differently. Or if we introduce... What do you them, mean? Yeah, they, um, um, we can see that they are, for example, more sensitive to the effects of certain chemicals. Mm. Okay, wait, wait, give me a second. So let's say there is a patient with autism. Do you, do you, what would you do with this patient? Would you take a, would you, would you, it's, okay, explain me from the beginning. You take a stem cell from this person, from this individual, and then you. Yeah. So nowadays we would typically a little bit of blood and um, the right blood cells are in the, in, in the blood can be reprogrammed to become stem cells. So it is nothing okay. unusual. You need really tiny amounts, um, not, uh, which, which are taken in routine um, examinations anyway. Uh, but with the consent of the patient or, and or the pa parents of the patient, um, you can start um, developing stem cell lines from them and can then work essentially in eternity with the material of the patient. You can work endlessly with these, uh, with these, uh, with these cells for um, we can freeze them, we can thaw them, we can work with them whenever we need them. We can make out of a few cells, we can make billions of cells. And for this reason, we don't need continuous supply with this, with a lot of patients. We need once and then everything is green lighted for our research. We can start working with this. Okay. So this patient that comes to you, you take out some, some white blood cells, you reprogram them into stem cells. With few cells that you take from this person, you can make millions of, of cells, but, and then when, when does it, when does the organoid come into play? Like you can now make an organoid based on, on that, right? And then you can test on this specific organoid that sort of relates to that specific patient. Exactly. Right? So, the, so the, the really cool thing is that we, that you have a patient and you know what type of disease the patient developed, what symptoms are. And at the same time, you have a functioning little representative of the brain of this person, which you can subject to tests and you can see, is there any chemicals which make this worse or are there any treatments possibly which could improve on this? Okay. Super interesting. So you're basically testing sort of like real time, the brain of the patient, but in a, in a non-invasive way, in a way. Exactly. So I have this in the laboratory available, but as at the same time, know what the patient suffers from. Um, and I can start to explain to which extent was the genetic makeup of this patient and to which extent, for example, could this been subject to effects of chemicals. What kind of chemicals or toxins do you inject into the organoids to test the different development? I mean, there's a couple of chemicals we know quite well who have these effects. For example, some heavy metals. Lead is an example of it. Heavy metals, we call them. But also arsenic is among them or mercury. 
because we have seen that in some cases of intoxications, they have produced exactly these effects in children. But they don't explain the broad variety of, of cases. Still, we know that exposure to higher amounts of these metals is producing problems in brain development. But there's also large strips of other substances like pesticides, some pesticides. You know, we kill, we kill insects mainly be, uh, by interfering with the brain of the insect. And uh, for this reason, these substances are always suspicious also to have some effects on the human brain. Mm, interesting. So I, I, these pesticides may be found in some foods? Yeah, um, we have to say that mostly these pesticides nowadays are used in low doses and they're also decaying fast enough that we don't have relevant amounts in the food after harvest. But people, for example, who are working with them can be exposed to pretty high doses. And if these are pregnant farm workers, uh, children could be exposed. Or people living close to these farms could also be exposed to these pesticides. But it's not only pesticides. There's also a lot of other substances which are highly suspicious. For example, we are using, especially in the U.S., a lot of so-called flame retardants. Um, What's that? Flame retardants are substances which um, make your furniture burn not as fast. So it is meant to um, protect you against um, a fire in your home. But uh, this is pretty nasty chemistry. A lot of this is actually looking very similar to some pesticides. And for quite a while already, people have got worried that we are possibly trying to do good here, but we're actually doing really bad. You mean with the, with the flame retardant? Yes, the flame retardants. You have to imagine some furniture sold in the US are one third flame retardants. That's the amount of chemical wow. they have to put in to achieve a relatively minor delay in the possibility to set these things on fire. And is, is this like transmissible or absorbable through the skin or how does it come into the, into the body? I mean, probably it comes into the body mainly as dust out of the furniture because these things are bound to the foam, to the materials in, in the furniture, but after a while, you get small particles like the microplastics, you know, from which are under discussion so much at the moment. And on, in this way, uh, we are inhaling this. Yeah. So imagine right. sleeping on a mattress, you're very close to possibly tons of chemicals, if this is not a biological material, which is then making you inhale and by this, in, in this way, taking up uh, particles, which include these, these chemicals. Wow. But it, should be, but it should be very clear, this has not been proven completely. We know about the risks and there is attempts to replace these substances because of these concerns, but nobody has shown it is the flame retardants which are responsible, let's say, for 10, 20, 30% of the increase in autism. This is something which is only possible to show if you have models. And this, right. This is why it is so important that our research in the life sciences gets models with these organoids, which are human, which are relevant, which have the genetic set of a, an autistic patient, which means somebody who is vulnerable to develop the disease. Okay. So the objective is to get human relevant models 
that can be used to demonstrate certain, let's say, consequences of chemicals, uh, heavy metals, pesticides, flame retardants, or any other sort of toxin that is affecting our brain, sometimes with the effect of a condition like autism, but I guess there is more than that. Is that correct? Exactly. So our personal um, interest was out of autism. So already in 2005, um, we started to work on developing these models because we wanted to have something to test what chemicals do for autism. But now with these models becoming better and better, we also work with people who are interested, for example, in Alzheimer's disease. In the beginning, I was skeptical because Alzheimer's is something we develop if you're 50, 60, 70 years old. I was wondering whether really cell cultures, which are only reflecting early development of the brain could actually help us here. But astonishingly, uh, again, cells which come from Alzheimer patients give us brain organoids, which are somewhat different, which so show some of the aspects of Alzheimer's disease. And, and this mm. is super cool because we can now ask, is something else contributing to this? For example, mm. Alzheimer is increasing dramatically much more than the aging of the population would explain. So we have began to ask, is there possibly some chemicals in our lifestyle which are impacting on, on this disease and are accelerating the development of, of this devastating condition? That's super interesting. I have, I have, I have some, some things I want to know without breaking the flow <laughs> of the conversation, because I think we have a good flow. Why the brain, first of all? Because this could, as far as I understand, this could be applied to any other organ. Is that correct? That's correct. And this is what people are doing. The field is at the moment really exploding. And we call these models microphysiological systems, which means in a micro scale, very, very small, our brain organs are just visible. Um, they have the size of a the eye of a house fly. And this, the, the size of what, sir? The eye of a house fly. So it's really half a millimeter. Wow. They're, they're almost microscopic. You have to work always with sort of some, some sort of visor or microscope to, to, to manipulate them or? Exactly. But you can still grab them, can place them from one vial into another um, as, as you desire, but um, they're really small. Of course, we don't need more. We also have no concerns really what these organoids are possibly capable of, which is an issue if we come back to organoid intelligence later. But the, the point is we have this model system, but you can do this with liver, with kidney, with heart, with muscle, uh, name it. I have had the fortune to be able to really become an opinion leader in this field. And we have just started a series of world summits for these microphysiological systems and also created the first international society in this field. And only two weeks ago, we had the second world summit in Berlin with 1,300 researchers, which is really important as a community coming together and developing the models for the life sciences um, in the 21st century. Is this somehow solving the issue of not having enough monkeys for research and making as a whole research in these topics cheaper? Yes. From my point of view, they, uh, these models make animal testing less important because 
human relevance is, is key. I always say we are not 70 kilogram rats. Yeah. And this is a very important sentence because it is really showing you the, the quintessence of all of this. We need something which is reflecting human. And this is only really possible in high quality since we have these microphysiological systems. It's a revolutionary technology. And is this at the moment only thought of, uh, let's say, the main application of this technology is for research, right? Yeah. Um, I would say so. The main application is certainly to understand how the organs are working, really. But then it is very quickly coming to drug development and it is coming to the area of, of toxicity testing because they have an important contribution of chemicals and exposure to disease. And, and we have difficulties studying this because at the moment we are very much limited to animal tests, which are costly and not always relevant. Have you found any, some sort of ethical or legal barrier when it comes to testing on organoids or mini, mini brains, mini organoids? Sure. There's, you have to see that whenever you work with these organoids, there's a human being, which is still running around. And it is very important that we have consent with this individual, what we are doing. Because Wait, let's stop right there. The, the organoid is related to a specific person and it is unique, almost like a, it's non-fungible, <laughs> like an NFT almost like it's, it's unique to that person. There cannot be something that organic cannot belong to someone else. Is that just to have that clear? Yeah, belong. It is, uh, it is different. So if I do one from you and one from me, the organ is somehow reflecting the two of us, um, which is beautiful because it allows us to and do personalized medicine, for example. You might re benefit from a drug better than me, and we can could test this in, in such a system. Or um, looking from the perspective of a drug company, by using enough donors, I might be able to find out how many of the patients will really benefit from a certain drug, or how many will, will possibly show side effects because I have them represented in my, in my test tubes. So it is really a game changer away from inbred rats, which are essentially identical twins. Uh, they have no variability to something which is really reflecting a human being with all of the different differences in genes and often also differences in the, the experiences we had over life, the diseases we have, we have had. The exposure with, uh, with the environment in general, like if I grow up in, in the tropics, I have a different sort of like bacteria composition than someone that grew up in the North Pole. Yeah. And for example, there's now such systems of the, of the gut, of the gastrointestinal system, where they even bring in the microbiome. So the individual bacteria, different people have, and they are studying what is different here. You have to imagine. We have about 900 different types of bacteria in our gut. If we are, if we don't know each other, only about 300 are the same. If you live together with someone for many years, about 600 are the same, but still mm -hmm. 300 roughly are different between me and my wife, even though we are staring over food and, and we are living together. Yeah. So imagine how much influence this can have on the development of disease. And this is highly human specific and this is right. why these systems 
are really enabling technologies to study these things like this. Another very prominent example is uh, virus infection. We just went through COVID and viruses are extremely human-specific. Um, we, until now, don't have a reasonable animal model of COVID-19. But we have tons of models now for each and every organ which are based on these stem cells where we can study how is it impacting on the heart, how is it impacting on the kidneys. And, mm. and, and we have, and this is absolutely human-specific and can only be studied in the human systems. So you, you're sort of de decentralizing, tailoring the way we study, for example, the way toxins or chemicals in the environment affects each one of us, but not only that, each one of our organs. And you can go maybe even on a deeper level beyond organs. And this is fascinating. Am I getting the idea correctly? Absolutely. So to give you an example from COVID again. When we all were confronted with COVID in January of 2020 as suddenly becoming a, a major threat, we learned that at least 30% of the patients show some brain symptoms, neurological symptoms. So I, I was, I asked instantly, I did, did a talk in early March, can the brain be infected with this? Because some of the coronaviruses, this family of four or 50 different viruses, some of them infect the brain and others don't. And it took me only until May to have the results of inspective experiments because we have these brain organelles ready. And we were the first to show in May of 2020 that the brain is infected by coronavirus and uh, that they are multiplying in our nervous system. Hmm. And this was really important and has, has then in the next year been reproduced by 10 other groups. We had a human brain available to very quickly test. And this was before any animal model and things similar. You know, this until today, no brain infection of the brain um, in an animal model, which is not often, often, yeah, often also naturally occurring animal dish, which is. So, so what effects? What effects did you find uh, in the nervous system from the coronavirus? I mean, the good thing is the effects were relatively small, which means the virus is multiplying. We find about 500 times more after three days, but it is not a massive infection, which is erasing many brain cells. It seems to be a very slow infection, but mm. it very well be involved in long COVID in some of these fatigue syndromes we are seeing in patients. This is something to be shown. Also put the fact that the brain can be infected and in some a portion of the patient is infected as clinical studies have shown is adding bad news to a pile of bad news because brain infection cannot be resolved by the immune system and also typically not by drug. So you have to live with this infection probably for your life. And we will only learn in the next uh, decades what this means for autism again or what it means for Alzheimer's because virus infections are also driving these type of diseases. I think it's really important that we have models to study this. Is there the is the pharma industry or bigger organizations paying attention to this technology and are they funding this or who is funding this? Who's behind this? Who's interested in this? I mean, our work has been funded first by the NIH and then the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency um, came in. 
but increasingly now we see that the pharma industry is, is interested. I've been presenting over the last six months to at least five pharma companies who are considering this type of models now for the, for their research. And this is really a, a very big trend that pharma, about 25% of all clinical trials are on brain diseases. So it is extremely important for them to have. Is this is sorry? Is this after is this after COVID? Because brain health kind of became a big deal after COVID, or or in general anyway. Well, this is data from before COVID already. So brain okay. health has been one of the biggest things for pharma industry because um, these are the big diseases, yeah, where you have to treat patients, millions of patients, for long periods of time, uh, many many uh, years of neurodegenerative diseases, but you also have multiple sclerosis, you have Parkinson. There's, a, there's quite a few of these diseases which are of high interest for pharma and where we don't have adequate treatment at the moment. Mm. Do you fear sometimes that the connection between the food industry and the pharma industry or the connection between the chemical industry and the pharma industry sort of hampers or limits the the reaction time on, for example, the pharma testing through your technology or the technology we're talking about here, um, certain effects of certain chemicals that are put into foods, or you told me the example of the furniture that I found incredible. Yeah. And so is there, is there sort of like conflict of interests here? And so it, do you fear that the pharma is kind of like stopping or pausing or not funding fast enough this development so that we as humans can come up with fast diagnosis on what is actually causing autism, what is actually causing Alzheimer's and all this mental health of it, beyond mental, I guess. Um, do, do you sometimes think about this? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really worried about this thought. I mean. Uh, there's certainly a disconnect between them in the sense of the pharmaceutical industry has the big pockets and is investing a lot of money in relatively few substances. There's about 20 new drugs which are coming to the market per year. 20, yeah? That's not a lot of chemicals. And they are studied extremely well uh, because they absolutely don't want to poison their customers. They, they are tested not only in all of these animal studies, but they're also tested in patients. Yeah, we're observing enormous number of patients for possible side effects of these drugs. Uh, and this is in big contrast to the uh, chemical industries, whether it's now in the food sector or whatever, we have thousands, tens of thousands of chemicals, which are, have never been probably tested because um, nobody can afford to test. They don't have the same profit margins as, as the pharmaceutical industry. So they're really very much, there's, there's an enormous gap of knowledge. And this is one of the big reasons for why these technologies offer something also for the chemical side, because we can now ask to test certain things, which we have not tested before. Mm, interesting. Well, why, why, why do you think, I mean, this is more maybe like a legal policy question, but why do you think the pharma has such a complex regulation and not the, the chemical industry? Because if the chemical industry, food industry can just like launch products, thousands of products per year without much pushback, 
and the pharma industry needs to go through like tons of clinical trials to launch one product. Do you think that, do you see that as a problem as well in, in, in some sense? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I have to say that's the fact. I mean, the, to bring uh, a drug to the market is on average $2.4 billion of investment. Uh, 2.4 billion. And it's a 12 year process. Any individual animal test or cell culture test um, is a tiny part, part of this, yeah. But it is for them very important to take the right decisions to put their money on the right horses, yeah in the process to be better than the competition or to be faster yeah. in the development. Um, drugs are a completely different beast. We have thousands of chemicals which are entering the market. I recently found a study. It showed that there's 350,000 chemicals which are registered in the 19 most developed countries. 350,000. 350,000. Okay. Yeah. So nobody could assess them reasonably with the same box of tools that the pharmaceutical industries employ. Um, they right. spend five to 10 million for a single drug, which goes into, into human trials. Why what is it like, so expensive by the way, Thomas? Uh, because animals are actually pretty expensive and their care and um, everything around them, uh, even more so if you want to have good data, the a rat, it's 30 to $50. Yeah, I may already mentioned the monkeys, which used to be around 5,000. Uh, if they're laboratory grade monkeys, they're now 35 to 50,000. And this is why, um, it becomes expensive, but more than the animals themselves, it is the facilities. It is the caretakers. It is all of the professional handling of these animals, uh, which makes these experiments expensive. Mm -hmm. So to give you uh, one example. Well, most people would love to know whether a chemical is producing cancer. Now that's, that's our biggest Yeah, thing. absolutely. I would love to know that. I mean, yeah. when I, when I literally changed my deodorant <laughs> two weeks ago, because I didn't trust on the chemical composition of what I was using before. Yeah. And so I'm, but like that, there's so many products that I would like to actually check real time. If I go to a supermarket, it would be great if I could have an app. Okay. So that somehow tells me. Specifically to my body, is this going to be good or not, for example? Yeah. And uh, what do we have at hand? There is an animal test, which is the adapted method to test the chemical produces cancer. This costs 850,000 and does take you about five years until you have a result. But, but this does not match the needs of an industry, which is permanently exchanging chemicals. Yeah? Um, right. The because you have to treat these animals, 400 rats for two years, every day of their lifetime, you need for this five to 10 kilograms of the chemical, which telechemists to produce. And then after these two years of treatment, it takes you about two years to cut these animals into slices and look for tumors in any possible org. And this is what makes it so costly. This is why. Only a very, very tiny fraction of all chemicals has ever been tested whether they produce cancer or not. So with OI, with this technology, you can't, you're kind of solving that problem as far as I understand for the chemical industry as well. And that's even more in a way appealing to them because they're releasing, launching, dropping new 
products more so than the pharma industry? Yeah, it could become because uh, if we now with the organ of intelligence do the next step, which is we can, we, we are in the process of putting memory and learning into these systems. So the real function of the brain. Uh, so this promises to be a much better, much more sensitive test system for the effects chemicals or drugs have on the brain. And um, at the same time, these are relatively inexpensive tests. These brain organoids are much less than a dollar a piece. It's not comparable and they don't need a cage. They don't need feeding. They don't need all of this infrastructure. You can put them in tiny, tiny devices and, and, and do your measurements. So it is really an enabling technology to understand what is possibly impacting on the function of the brain. You see, you see like at some point having like OI banks, like organoid intelligence banks, where I store my OI related to my heart and then my OI related to my liver and then somehow there, maybe this is a bit too off in the future, somehow you can have it, have like an app or something on your phone that is connected to that organoid that, and you can test sort of like the chemicals that are around you, whether it's your shampoo or deodorant or the food you're eating or, or whatever. Is that, is that somehow the, the, the way you see it, it maybe far in the future? I, I, I would say it's not, it, this is all possible, whether you would do it on an individual level of, let's say, having your organoids and test on them, probably you would have, you need to have deep pockets to enable this, yeah. But to do it, to understand the variability of uh, different uh, humans, for sure. This is where we are already. We will. What do you mean with that? Yeah, we can already produce from essentially anybody brain organoids or other organoids and can compare them to see how different we humans are. And we can look into gender differences. We can look into genetic differences because you have a certain disease. You can look into different ethnicities. So there's a lot enabled here. We also will be presenting this month at the, at the conference for the first time that we can freeze these brain organoids. So we can actually produce a bank of organoids and then I can say, okay, in two weeks, I want to do an experiment for which I need three patients, brains from three patients with Alzheimer's and two with Parkinson. And then I take five controls and I can just throw them and use them. So you can huh. imagine how much this enables. So you can bring the same organoid in any country. You can even bring it to the space station if you like. Super, super, super interesting. What do you mean with memory? injecting memory into the OI, because you, you, you mentioned that, but I didn't quite get it. Yeah, this is the, actually, this was the big message of um, announcing these efforts and the programs on organic intelligence. We have, for the first time now, the machinery of learning and memory in these systems. So we have everything which is needed to make them learn. So for example, some of our partners from Australia, Protocol Lab, they had a nice paper in November on neuronal cultures playing Pong, the computer game. So they could show that they can train these cell cultures to get better and better in playing a computer game. 
And they're now working with our brain organoids because we also have the machinery for long-term learning because their cell cultures became better and better in a training session, but next day they'd forgotten everything because they simply were not having all of the architecture of the brain, which is necessary. And, and um, in this way, also in our research projects at Hopkins, we are at the moment trying to demonstrate long-term learning. We are trying to find ways of developing test systems, which are allow on the one hand, the testing of chemicals and drugs, which I described so far, but also yes. which allow us to better understand how the brain is such a incredible computer outperforming in some aspects, the best computers in the world. Help me understand. I would, I would like, because this is also an audio, I, I, we cannot show images or a video, but I would like to have you help us visualize when you're standing in the lab and you're telling me that an organoid can play some computer game. And, and memorize um, some stuff. How do, how do you visualize that? How do you know that is happening in the lab? What, what do you see? What help me, help me visualize this moment. Organized intelligence is actually the combination of um, three very quickly developing technologies. We call them disruptive technologies. The one we talked about so far is mainly the engineering of the brain organ itself. But in order to communicate with the brain organic I need sensors. And this is also something that is extremely rapidly developing. We call them microelectrode arrays, which means we have tons of small electrodes in a very compact design. So compact that essentially each and every of the cells of the brain organic is in contact with at least one of these electrodes. And, and, and this allows us to communicate, to record them like an EEG an electroencephalogram, you know, when you record the brain activity of a human, uh, but we can also feed information inside. We can tell the brain, this is where the ball of the pong game is moving. And this is where the pedal is at the moment. And um, mm -hmm. so this is the sensor technology side. And the third technology is AI because we can really communicate with the organoid. So we can start, understand how do we train them best, how do we get um, reproducible answers of the system in order to optimize their learning behavior. Would you say an organoid, okay, so now I understand there's three technologies, the sensors, the, the, the actual physical engineered organoid and the AI. And when you combine these three is this new technology emerges. Would you say this is a, a live in itself? Does it, is it, would you consider this a, a living organism? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this, first of all, it is living because I mean, these cells are alive. It's reacting to the outside signals, but this is the cell culture as well. It is not in the sense an autonomous system. It cannot walk around. It cannot decide which inputs it wants to get. Um, it is also a very small system. So it has less neurons as a fly has, for example. But it is something which is clearly perceiving the signals and it is improving its behavior. It is some type of synthetic biology. That's super, super interesting. And I guess for some people it's, it's frightening. 
Yeah, I think the, this is why we have ethicists involved from the very beginning. I don't think that there's anything frightening at this stage. Uh, as right. I said, we are talking about very small systems. We are talking about very limited information experiences they can make. So I'm absolutely not worried that I would produce a conscious system, something which is developing emotional sentiments in any way, uh, but we should foresee that when we scale this, this could happen at some point. And this is why we work with ethicists to design with us the experiments who come into our labs and when they see these tiny, tiny balls of cells, which are, uh, you normally need the microscope to see them well, um, this gets you much more humble and you understand that this is nothing to compete with even a handheld calculator in the foreseeable future. Yeah. Right. But it is at the same time, it is extremely important to have these discussions so that we are prepared to communicate this properly, that we are also setting limits of what such a system can do and should do. And this is why this is such an important part uh, to have these ethical discussions. Right. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I'm, I'm the reason why I invited you, because I, I think this is super, super exciting, more than frightening, but this is my personal view. I understand that maybe some of my listeners would find it more frightening than exciting, but it's a good point that you have ethicists in your team to make sure that at least we think about this also from a moral, ethical standpoint, even if we're still very early in this process. I have a question actually, because when, when you were talking about the gut microbiome, I immediately thought about all those hundreds of bacteria that we have there. What is the relationship or how, or can you actually use bacteria in the organoids, in this structure between sensors, organoids, and AI? Do they play any role? Could they play any role? Because I feel like bacteria is such a undervalued part of our bodies and they're yet so important, so important. And yeah. so what's your take on this? First of all, you're right. We have 10 times more bacteria in and on our body than we have cells of our own. And they've gone through evolution with us. These bacteria have um, developed a symbiosis with us. We are um, caring for them and they care for us in many aspects. And we only start to understand uh, what the impact on diseases and also they make us different. If you take the twins, for example, they have, they start essentially with the same microbiome, their gut, and then over their lifetime, they completely diverse and, uh, and in age, they only have about one third of the, of the bacteria in common. So there's a diversification which takes place and uh, nobody knows how much this is impacting on, on, on you as a being. And uh, probably there's quite a few substances which are coming from these bacteria, which are permanently in our bloodstream. And we only started to understand how they impact on, uh, on our metabolism on, and anything to do. Interesting. Interesting. Thomas, any last words, anything you would like to share in this beautiful conversation that we just had? Yeah, I think the, the big message from, from my side is really that we uh, see these disruptive technologies, which are changing life sciences. 
making models available has, first of all, an instant impact on how we do medicine and medical research, drug development, or find health threats. But the big perspective is also by understanding how the brain works, we can learn how to build even better computers. You know, the best supercomputer in the world, the Frontier computer in Kentucky, only reached a performance of the human brain last June, one year ago. And this was a 680 square meter installation, which did cost $600 million. And so, so far away are we from the computational power of the human brain. So there's an enormous prospect by understanding how the brain does the trick, how we can do with a million times less energy on just 1.4 kilograms of brain do these marvelous things. So it is really very, very interesting how different the brain is at its performance. So for example, if you want to teach a child, what is the difference between a horse and a donkey, you need about 10 pictures. Yeah. And then they get it reasonably well, but you need several hundred pictures to train, um, computer to distinguish them at the same error rate. And you need only a single picture to explain to a child what the unicorn is. We would need several hundred pictures again to make computer distinguish this. Or if you want to add knowledge, let's say you learn 10 words in Italian to stay with, the, uh, with this from the, from the beginning, you would need to rerun the model. While we learn progressively, we can just add knowledge to what we already know. So we have some, some properties which are really unique and by learning how the brain does the trick, we can build better computers. So this is neuromorphic computing and, and this is something where our better improved understanding can help a lot. That's, that's fabulous. One last thing I want to know, and I want to pick your brain on this, Thomas, from your perspective as a pharmacology, toxicology expert, professor of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and experienced microbiological and immunological medical professor, what or how do you see the world from that lens developing in the next 50 years, from the lens, from the perspective that you are at the moment? In the following 50 years, 100 years, maybe go a bit further. You can get crazy with the answer. No one is going to judge you. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'm a notorious optimist because I see how um, the availability of science and technology is um, improving our lives, um, our longevity. The last 40 years that um, our original investment, the human genome, by sequencing human genes has really created enormous progress. The similar investment into the exposure side of human health, the exposome instead of the genome, creates something very similar because exposure has at least as much influence on our health as genetics has. And if we understand both, we can do all these things in preventing diseases, but also in um, healing and curing diseases. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that our increased understanding enabled by these type of technologies is really helping us to improve on a large scale human health and hopefully not just for, for the highest industrialized countries. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thomas, 
I have to thank you so much for your time. It was a fantastic conversation. Uh, I really had fun. I learned a lot of things. I hope our listeners also got their brains working and moving. And uh, this is absolutely incredible what you're working on. Thank you so much once again for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, buona, buona serata. Buona serata la prossima. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. Here at the Mr. Rad Show, we provide first-hand information straight from the original source of knowledge. The personal opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect those of Mr. Rad. This show is brought to you by The Rad House, an unbiased, transparent, agendaless, independent media house. Our theme music is written and produced by Marco Mello.